from St. Paul's second epistle to Timothy, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, good morning. You know, I love that hymn. Thank you for playing that. Uh, Clarence Darrow, who's a, a prosecutor, a judge and a prosecutor, once said that uh, he was talking about crimes, and he said, uh, history repeats itself, and that's the, one of the things wrong with history. It's true. History does repeat itself, not because of some invisible hand of economics or some ghost in the machine that somehow navigates through the intricacies of life mindlessly. How that happens, how you could mindlessly orchestrate history is ridiculous to my mind. But anyway, but I think that, that we can all agree, I think, that history does in fact repeat itself because, frankly, people are people. Specifically, people, including me, are broken sinners. We are people that all fall short all throughout history. Every single one of us, God knows me included. And not only that, not only do we make the same mistakes over history, we make the same mistakes over and over again in our own lives. Amen? So here's the question. And a funny thing, too, I was thinking about, you know, Socrates. Socrates, famous Greek philosopher. Socrates himself, 2,500 years ago, he famously complained about the youth of ancient Greece, that they were lazy and disobedient and rebellious. So I think we need to cut some slack to our millennials. And uh, God knows even when I was a teenager, I was the same way. But the point is, of course, and we can all agree, I think, on this, that there is nothing new under the sun, that uh, the, things have always been wrong. The culture has always been uh, mistaken. Things tend to fall apart. But here's the question I'm going to talk about today. Not dwell on the recurring cycle of history, but ask the question, why is it so bad? It's a good question. Why is history so bad in the first place? And, if, and then how, how, do we, how do we and how can we fix it? Those are my two points for today, right? The culture in which we live. Why is it so messed up then and now? And then how do we fix it? Two points. I want to look at, right out of Paul's epistle here to Timothy, I want to look at the godlessness of society. The godlessness of society and the corrective power of Scripture. The godlessness of society, which just means a, go a society without God. I want to look at the godlessness of society and then the corrective power of Scripture. So first thing, the godlessness of society. You know, it's funny, when Susan read that epistle from 2 Timothy, it's almost comical if you go back and, back and reread it. Paul's got a list of, I don't know, 25 different things that he's criticizing people for. It is a veritable cornucopia, a smorgasbord of all sorts of dysfunctional things that people do. I mean, I'm going through that list and I'm thinking, man, there's, I think he's pretty much covered it all, right? Um, he, he writes this in verse 1. He says, Timothy, understand this, that in the last days to come, there will be, these will be times of difficulty. I'll get to that in a second. For people will be lovers of money, sorry, lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless. Sounds like a good description of uh, Philadelphia Eagles fans, actually. Uh, <laughs> Did you know, did you know this, that I'm from Philly, so I can do this. Of course, I do it anyway. Uh, did you know that on December 15th, 1968, 
which was actually five days before I was born, ironically, December 15th, 1968, 53 years ago, Philadelphia Eagles fans erupted in a frenzy at the halftime show against the Minnesota Vikings. I've been to an Eagles game at the Link, a night game, so this is not terribly surprising. Philly fans are known for being a little off the res. Anyway, Philadelphia Eagles fans erupted the home, the, uh, the halftime show against the Minnesota Vikings. You know what they did? <laughs> They hurled snowballs and batteries at Santa Claus. Poor old Saint Nick got a whooping in the city of brotherly love. This is Paul's point. <laughs> this is Paul's point. This is his description of the culture which we live now and even in 1968 and all the way back to when Paul's writing. The reason Paul's talk describing the culture in which we live is not, is not some future time it is now. Realize this, when he says in the end times, listen to this, we live in the end times. And people think, oh, come on, it's been 2,000 years since Jesus died. You know, let's get on with this already. But the end times, you've got to understand what it means. The end time means... What's the last thing Jesus did, right? He ascended back into heaven from where he is. He ascended into heaven and seated at the right hand of the Father, and he shall come again to judge the quick and the dead. So we are right now between the last thing he did going to heaven and the last thing he will do, return. We are in the last times. So Paul says in the last times, this is what you are going to see. This dysfunction, this brokenness, this godlessness in culture. Friends, we are in these last days. And Paul is describing not only his own culture, which he is, or the Philadelphia Eagles in 1968, December 5, he's describing our own. Heartless. Listen to, these ver Listen to this. Heartless, verse 3, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, Swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And then here's the money quote that I'm going to spend some time on. Having the appearance of godliness, listen, but denying its power. In other words, when you take God out of the culture, what you have is a culture that behaves in a way, all these bad things, they have the appearance of godliness, but they deny its power. What does that mean? Well, they know how they should live, and they refuse to do it. We, I know at least I, know how I should live, and I don't always do it either. In fact, what you see is people that take, when, you, when God is taken out of the picture, what you see is the form of religion. What does that mean? It means moralism. It means judgmentalism. It means pointing the finger at somebody and telling them how bad they are. It's always fascinating to me. And not surprising, given what Paul says, when you find secular atheistic progressives accuse Christians of being hateful or bigoted. And I'm not saying that's never happened. Of course it has. We are all sinners, and any Christian would admit that. But what always fascinates me is when you've got secular atheistic progressives accusing Christians of being hateful and bigoted, but they are just as hateful and bigoted as those whom they claim are. They are just as, as hateful and bigoted, these secular atheistic progressive are just as hateful and bigoted as those who they claim are themselves hateful and bigoted. Want some proof? 
Listen to Whoopi Goldberg or Jay Behar on The View. I've never actually sat through an entire one. I should someday pay for my sins. Look at, look at this again. Heartless, unappeasable, slanderous. They have all the marks of religious condemnation. While denying, listen, the very God that can transform. In other words, culture, when you remove God from the culture, from the human experience, you have the appearance of godliness, judgment, but you're denying its power. It's all law and no grace. And that is how our culture and the culture in Paul's day worked as well. If you take God out of the culture, you are left with nothing but moralism and finger-pointing. When, when you take God out of the picture, friends, it's all gaslighting. Booker T. Washington once wrote, a lie doesn't become truth, and wrong doesn't become right, and evil doesn't become good just because it's accepted by the majority. Just because our culture wants to, us to redefine gender as a social contract, something fluid, just because we can't define what's a woman, doesn't mean it's not right, doesn't mean it's right. Just because our culture wants to make abortion on demand, up and including the time of birth, doesn't mean it's right. But this is the point that Paul's making. Society left on its own becomes godless. It cannot not become godless. If a culture starts without a belief in God, it becomes godless. Friends, if we start in a place without a belief in God, then we too become godless. So if we're such a mess, if the culture in which we live is such a godless place, if the world is so broken and always has been, where's the solution? Where's the solve? And this is Paul, Paul's second point, to the corrective power of Scripture. You know, society needs a corrective. In fact, we're getting ready to do the midterm elections, and everybody's campaigning, and everyone's saying how they're going to solve the problem. Everybody recognizes there are problems. There are problems, many. Everybody sees it. Any thoughtful person, religious or not, can look at the culture and say things are broken. Society needs a corrective. You and I need a corrective, a gut check, something to show us how to live in a godless culture. And Paul tells us, watch this. Paul says, all scripture is breathed out by God. God breathed. Let me stop there for a second. In, biblically speaking, God's breath, his wind, it's the same word, wind and breath is, this, is the same Hebrew word, rock. God's breath is a creative force. We're Floridians, right? So for us, just coming off the tail of Hurricane Ian, we hear of wind, and for us, wind is something which destroys things, right? It blows things up. It, ask my, my sister-in-law, Ginny, who lives in Fort Myers. It's a mess out there. For us, for Floridians, Wind is a destructive force. But biblically speaking, listen to this. This is super cool. Biblically speaking, and God's wind, God's breath, is a, is a destructive and a constructive force. I'll give you a couple of quick examples. In Genesis chapter 1, the very first sentence of the Bible, it says that the earth was formless and void, and God's breath hovered over the water and created things. 
right? Later on, in, in, uh, later on, God creates Adam and Eve. He takes some red dirt and he breathes into it. And he creates Adam and Eve. Later on, Jesus later gets his apostles together in the upper room and he, said, and he breathes on the apostles and says, receive the Holy Spirit. Whose sins you forgive, they are forgiven. Whose sins you retain, they are retained. The point is, God's breath is a creative, listen, and transformative force. It destroys the old way, but it creates the new. And Paul says that this creative, transformative power, this power of God to literally change and transform your heart and mine is found here in Scripture. I'll prove it. I'll prove it to you. You ever heard a sermon and you thought, man, that, that really spoke right to me. Ever happened to you? It happens to me all the time when I'm preaching. To me. So it's not just you. That's pretty strange. But there, there's a reason for it. And the reason is because it's not me. It's the word of God coming through me or through the preacher to you. And between me and you is the Holy Spirit. And he is the one who changes the heart, you see. You ever heard something, I heard something in a sermon which stuck in your craw? Which you go, whoa, where'd that come from? That's exactly what I needed to hear. Well, <laughs> there it is. That is God's transformative power. His creative wind, his breath coming through scripture into your heart. Friends, the Bible is not just a book. The Bible has the power to literally change your life. God knows it's changed mine and is changing mine. And Paul doesn't just make the, make the assertion. He shows us four different ways that Scripture does this. I'll show you quickly. Paul says that all Scripture is God-breathed, right? And this is how, this is the four ways Paul says Scripture changes you and changes me. First, he says all Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, sorry, teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. Let's look at those four things. They're different things. Teaching, the first thing the Word of God does is it teaches us. See, here's the thing. Scripture is the way that you learn about God. People say, oh, come on, I go out and I go out and I fish or I golf or I, I play tennis and I walk on the beach and I can meet God there. Yeah, you can, kind of. You can experience a sense of the sublime, a sense of the supernatural. You can study science and go, there's got to be something more to the story. That's obvious. Romans 1 makes this very claim that all creation does in fact show us that God is real. But if you want to really know who he is and who you are, he has to tell you. I met my wife Kathy at Penn State, and they got creamed yesterday, I know. Uh, I met my wife Kathy at Penn State. She's wearing a pink ski jacket. I met her at a party. It's actually a great story. Won't go into it today for time. But I met her at a party, and I thought, wow, that, I wanted to meet her, right? She's talking to people like that. She was fun to be around. I said to my roommate, hey, who's, that, who's that blonde girl? And he said, hands off, she's mine. I said, oh, no. And, uh, and uh, here we are. But I could look at her, and I could watch her in, a, in interactions with people, and I could even ask other people about her, right? But if I want to know who she is, I've got to do what? You've got to talk to her. Tell me about what you like to do. Tell me about yourself. Well, that's actually what the Bible is for us. It's God's revelation to us of who he is and who you are. If you want to know who God is, you've got to read the Bible. If you want to know who God is, you've got to think about these things. 
He's got to tell you about himself. He's got to reveal himself to you. That's what the Bible is. It teaches us about him. And people say, you know, because, oh, you know, God works in mysterious ways. He works in mysterious ways. That's not true at all. Not even a little bit. God is not, God is mysterious in his nature. He is the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in one. That is true. God's nature is a mystery. But listen, God is crystal clear about who he is and who you are and how you and I are called to live. God is a God, he's not a God of mystery. He is a God of clarity. But you've got to read scripture. You've got to be familiar with it to know what he's like. So the first thing scripture does is it teaches us about God. The second thing it does is it's useful for teaching and for reproof. That word for reproof there, I mean, I've never used the word reproof ever, but the Greek word is the word allegamon. And it means to convict someone. It means to, it means to uh, I don't know how you say, uh, cut to the quick. It means to, uh, to challenge you. You ever hear a sermon being preached and something stings a little bit? I hope so. There's an old saying, a good preacher comforts the afflicted and afflicts the comfortable. You ever heard that before? It's a good one. But it's the truth. You and I learn when we are challenged by something. I'm going to do it for you in a minute. But this idea that the Word of God is it, it, it reproves us, it challenges us, it makes us realize, oh man, I got to make a change. I mean, imagine if if Scripture did not reprove us and just allowed us to go along, making our own way, do whatever we want to do, we'd be like that uh, proverbial 35-year-old kid playing Xbox in his parents' basement, right? A person without reproof, a person who's not challenged, doesn't grow. And God's Word teaches us, but it also corrects us. Have you ever noticed, and then it reproves us, it also corrects us. That's the third thing it does. And this is an important one. God's word does not just correct, reprove, it also corrects. Let me, let me make an illustration. Um, you ever had someone in your life who is critical of you all the time? Who just points out your faults all the time? Someone who just always is reproving, criticizing you and leaves it there? You ever had someone like that in your life? You probably have. If not, you've seen it done. But someone who never shows you how to do better. Well, that's where Scripture corrects us, the third thing. It doesn't just reprove you, it corrects you. God's Word teaches and reproves, but it also corrects us and shows us how to live better. Let me give you an example of all three of those things. And there's lots. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus says the following. He is teaching, reproving, and correcting in one sentence. In Matthew 18, Jesus says, If a brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Listen to that again. If a brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Now, if you're like me, you don't like confrontation. No one likes confrontation. If someone hurts our feelings or says something which offends us, we'd rather not rock the boat, rather not make waves, just kind of go along and to get along, maybe laugh at it and flop. Jesus says, oh, no, no. You don't get off that easily. You can be offended, but you've got to take action. You've got to, he corrects us and says, if a brother sins against you, go and tell him or her their fault. What do most of us do? Well, we, 
don't tell our faults to that person. We go and we, we talk about them to other people, or we gossip about them, or we go on Facebook and make some underhanded, snide comment. We do all sorts of things except confront the person. Jesus says, oh, no, no, that's not an option for you as a Christian. If someone sins against you, go and tell them their fault. Let me challenge you, and this might sting, but that's the point. Reprove. When is the last time somebody criticized you, hurt your feelings or upset you or made you angry? Did you go and tell them that fault? If not, you were wrong. Jesus says, go and tell them. Tell them their fault. You know, it's funny. I teach this with my staff. I do it myself. Nine times out of ten, if you go to somebody and tell them that they've hurt your feelings, they're going to say, what are you talking about? I have no, I'm sorry. I had no idea. So what Jesus says is, look, if someone sins against you, go and tell them. Because one thing is for certain, if you don't tell them, it solves nothing. And that is why, for example, Jesus does not give us that option. If a brother sins against you, go and tell him their fault. And what does that do finally? When you learn to go, for example, and tell someone their fault, God has taught you, reproved, corrected you, and you do it, What does that lead to? Well, now you've been trained in righteousness. What does that mean? Well, righteousness is nothing fancier other than knowing what the right thing is and doing it. Paul says, says, if the Scripture teaches, reproves, corrects, and trains you in righteousness, this is the point. If someone offends you, for example, and there's lots of examples here, go and tell them their fault. And when you learn to do it, You are learning to do it more and more. You are becoming more and more trained in how to do the right thing. So here's the thing. This is cool. It's life-changing. Scripture is, in fact, God-breathed. It has the power of God to change my heart, your heart, every heart that is willing to listen to it and do what it says. Because God's Word is true and it has power. And it has power to transform our entire culture, to take it from godless to godly. But God's word only operates one heart at a time, starting with yours, beginning with you, to transform our culture by changing your heart and having you be an example to the culture in which we live. Shall we pray, Father, we thank you for your word, which challenges us, which comforts us, which corrects us, which teaches us about who you are and how we are called to live lives of joy. Help us, Lord, to read your your word, to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest what it says, and to live accordingly, to live righteously, to live by doing what you call us to to be salt and light in a culture which so desperately needs it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity, visit us online at trinitybureau.org and follow us on Facebook.